Old Vines Written by Sevdrak and read by Literarian Chapter 34 A Tasting Flight Appreciating the Reserve Part 1 Warlock wakes up in Adam's bed and just can't make himself smile. He loves waking up with Adam. Adam's so brainless in the mornings and he talks in his sleep and Warlock's constantly recording videos when he talks Adam into saying all kinds of ridiculous nonsense. Mainly, he's recording the videos so that when he and Az have to leave, he has something to watch to wake up to, because he's gotten used to waking up to this kind of shit, and he doesn't want to think about how long he'll have to go before he can again. Waking up with Pepper and Adam isn't at all the same. Pepper is a disgustingly early riser and always slips out at some ungodly hour of the morning, but she can also somehow predict the exact moment Warlock and Adam are going to emerge from the bedroom because she always has coffee and some kind of breakfast ready. Which is nice in its own way, really. It's just different. They've talked about it. A bit. Pepper, of course, is her own free spirit, and while she's admitted she'll miss him, she isn't looking for anything else. Warlock and Adam have stumbled through it a bit. It's hard for them, because neither one knows what their boss will end up doing. Warlock will have to go back to L.A. with us, at least in the beginning, because he needs to play some very careful hardball to keep this entire thing from falling apart. And then it depends on what As wants to do afterwards. Warlock's aware that he doesn't have to stay near As to do his job, but he's really come to care for the idiot too. It's an equation that can't yet be solved. Too many variables. And Adam's in a, well, not exactly a similar boat. He and his team have enough clients here to survive, but that would mean they have to keep doing the kind of work they've gotten tired of doing if Crowley turns them down. Adam has threatened multiple times to show up on Warlock's doorstep in L.A. if Crowley decides to move in a different direction, and Warlock does enjoy the thought of that. He and Adam taking on the big city. But he fears Adam wouldn't be happy there for long. Next to him, Adam rolls over and mutters something about a dog. Fuck. He's become comfortable here. But Warlock's life doesn't work like that, really. He's gotten this far by making sure to move the second he gets comfortable so that he keeps growing. There's a song about it that sticks in his head sometimes. But I'm good at being comfortable, so I can't stop changing all the time. That's the way he got here. 
he can't change the way he operates, not even for Adam, not even for Ass. He just has to be careful. He spent months drawing Aziraphale out of the shell he was stuck in, showing him the bars of the cage he had manifested for himself, and he's so goddamn proud of Ass that he could explode with it but he probably needs to take some time to think about his own happiness too, right? He glances over at Adam, who's now drooling into his pillow. His hair is a mess of curls. Warlock snaps a picture and sends it to Pepper, because he looks ridiculous and someone has to appreciate it the tangle of his hair too thick to be even real. Sure, it'll hurt to leave, but... Huh. But maybe they don't have to leave quite so soon. <music> Madame Tracy Shadwell, also known as Colleen O'Leary, Mistress Melisande and Marjorie Potts, is not an idiot. She might be simple, sure, she lives a simple life as a landlord now and has a simple husband with simple needs. But simple never, ever means stupid and people have always underestimated her, haven't they? They see her garish wigs and her crystal balls, or the leather pinny, and write her off as just another silly woman. And that's exactly what has gotten her this far in life. Maybe it isn't a fair game, but she isn't making them underestimate her. She's just taking advantage in her silly little woman way. And oh, she did like Mr. Fell and his lovely assistant, Mr. Warlock. So kind they were always doing their own laundry, leaving her with only the linens to manage, and even buying their own groceries sometimes when they wanted something specific. Out of pocket, too. They'd been such good house guests, clean and neat, keeping their own spaces even in the grand villa they'd ended up in. They'd even brought her wine on occasion when they discovered something lovely during one of their day trips. She's absolutely sweet on them. Not to mention the way Mr. Fell had taken up with her darling Crowley. Golly, she's never seen Crowley blush so much, or smile so much, really, when he thought no one was looking. Privately, she always thought Crowley deserved someone a little sweet, but also someone that would be able to tell him to go soak his head when necessary. Mr. Fell seems just the man. It's all quite darling. So when that attractive Mr. Warlock had called, hinting cheekily at a way she could maybe help them out a bit, who was she to say no? No, I'm sorry, Mr. Archer. She coos into the phone, her voice so sweet only her darling husband would take it in his tea. 
I'm terribly sorry. It's far too late in the year to rent it out again, you see. And it's just that we've made all the plans already with the original contract. I've got deliveries coming in, you know. It isn't hard to outbluster a corporate blusterer. Gosh, in her days as Madame Melisande, she'd taken whips to a young man for less. Now, that all had been strictly consensual and for relaxation, but still, she doesn't even have to change her voice. Unless you can produce a renter out of thin air, Cupcake, I don't see how that's going to help me. Maybe she's laying it on a bit thick, but the man on the other line seems a bit thick, so it feels justified. She's keeping her voice light, aiming for halfway between ditzy and flirty. Poor man won't even know what hit him. You understand, don't you, Sunshine? This late in the season, it's nearly impossible to rent out a villa that big. A pause for dramatic effect. If I'd had more warning, maybe... The yelling rolls off of her like whatever water rolls off of. Just make sure the final payment is in before the contract ends. There's a love. It's in her best interest to wrap this up herself. Cooey, Mr. Archer. Have a lovely day. It isn't often that she gets to do these kinds of things, so if she tries to flirt with that dashing Mr. Warlock when she calls to report back, it really isn't her fault, is it? He flirts back, that darling, delightful, naughty boy. Tracy's happy to have thrown her weight around for him. Wouldn't it be lovely if they stayed? Crowley does wake up smiling. It's maybe a rough smile, the edges of his dreams still echoing around the corners of his mouth, but it's hard to stay swept up in that vague sadness when Aziraphale is snoring beside him. They've been spending nearly every night together, unless Crowley's had too rough a day in the fields and just wants to turn in. It could feel desperate, like they're trying to cram everything into the short period of time they have left, but it doesn't. Secretly, and Crowley would never admit this aloud, it feels like a preview. Like a promise. Like if everything works out, at some point, this is what they have coming to them. This is what they could be. This is the reason they'll work through all of this. This is the reason he'll be able to handle Aziraphale being so far away, because at some point in the future, in the end, this is the price they'll get to have. He slips out of bed. Aziraphale, as it turns out, is not a morning person. Crowley wouldn't have said he was, but as they've become more and more familiar, he thinks he might be. 
There's something about being up for the dawn and stopping over in the ecstasy's kitchen to start the coffee pot. Something about wandering out into his own garden in bare feet and shorts, in being able to note the dew on his grapes before it evaporates in the September heat. It helps to ground him, prepare him for the rest of the day by letting him have these few moments alone and unobserved, toes in the soil and sun on his face. He'll wake Aziraphale up before he goes to work, of course. Slide back into his bed and kiss him awake. Something he's found Aziraphale loves – and get to see Aziraphale's grumpy sweet smile that only exists in the mornings. He already knows Aziraphale as a decadent, luxurious creature, and this is just one more piece of that. His angel, tucked up in the sheets, grumbling about having to wake up. How is that so endearing? Crowley obviously has no taste. He has too much to do. First, harvest. Nothing interrupts harvest. Adam and Pepper have already arranged for the same crew they usually use, a local wine and book club filled with folks interested in being part of the process, but not interested enough to take the plunge into anything like commitment. Crowley's had years to put the fear of God into them, or more accurately, the fear of Crowley, and they all regard him with the kind of frightened awe he thinks is properly respectful. He isn't going to let just anyone touch his vines, thank you very fucking much. They'll probably start on the Chardonnay in a week, maybe two. He's been out daily, tasting the grapes and checking the soil, bringing back gorgeously pale bunches to test for sugars and check the colour of the seeds. He's going to teach Anathema to do it soon. Not that he's going to let her do it on her own, but it's the kind of thing she'll enjoy doing. If she's really going to become a part of this, it's time for her to start her own notebook to track the harvest from year to year. Knowing Anathema, she'll probably also track the face of the moon and where Mars is or something, but whatever. Crowley's the one who eats dirt. Rumbling at the edges of his subconscious is the thought of the... merger? Deal? Whatever the fuck the word is. Whatever the fuck crazy thing he's agreed to do. Crowley realizes that he's decided to do it, but he still kind of thinks he's legitimately fucking insane. The whole thing is... fuck. It's a commitment, and those are scary. He's committing to other people, to bringing them in and letting them stay. No one's ever stayed. And if he does this, they're here long term. No wonder it feels like he's standing on the edge of a fucking cliff. Whatever. 
harvest first. He needs to go through his database, compare the colors on Ruth to the last three years, see where she was. She might be ready for an early harvest. He still isn't sure about the fucking petite Sarah either. He's going to have to pull that one up as well. Maybe waiting for a late harvest on that one makes sense. He's never tried that before. Might be worth it. He realizes he's finished his coffee. The sun's still at that golden angle of morning, fog just evaporating from the vineyard. The sight of it stills his thoughts, as it always has. Crowley is so fucking grateful suddenly, just a moment where he realizes what kind of absolute fucking disaster he'd be if he didn't have a way to shut his goddamned brain up. He still has no idea why she left him the space, but wow, somehow she knew. Enough being sappy out at the vines. If he's going to have a feeling, he may as well go have it at Aziraphale, who's certainly still sleeping soundly. In Crowley's bed, in his room, in his house. Crowley's still waiting for it to be weird. It still isn't. Adam thinks they've done it. Crowley hasn't said anything. Crowley hasn't said shit, and it would be really annoying, except that Adam has years of watching Crowley in his back pocket. For someone who postures and postulates as much as Crowley does, he's really quite easy to read once you can look past the sunglasses and the swagger. It's the reason Adam's the head of the them. He's always been good at reading people, ever since he was a kid. Something he was born with. But he's watching Crowley now, more carefully than ever, and it's the little things that are giving him away. The way he keeps taking Anathema out to the little lab in the crushing building to show her how to measure the pH, bricks, the levels of malic acid. The way his eyes keep flicking over to Brian and Newt in the kitchen, and the way the tension in his mouth relaxes when he does. Crowley keeps his eyes on them far more than usual, as if he's counting them, checking how many of them are here, in his space. Adam has Wensleydale leave the proposal on Crowley's desk. Crowley glares at him for the next three days, but still says nothing, because Crowley is a little shit. But Adam thinks they've got him. There are levels to their offer, and Adam wasn't sure whether one would speak more loudly than the others. Getting out from Hell Law's increasingly terrible terms and conditions has to be a big one, but Adam doesn't know whether Crowley would grab at any chance to do so. It had to be the right offer. 
Then there's the buy-in, the chance to let them all have a little bit of ownership in this place they've come to love. Crowley does not like to share, but he has to know they've got something surprisingly good here. It's not just money. It's a chance to take a little bit of weight off of Crowley's bony shoulders. As far as he knows how to read Crowley, he doesn't necessarily know Crowley as intimately. Crowley's a private bastard, for all he likes to lurk around in the tasting room scaring off tourists, and while Adam considers him a friend, he certainly isn't often treated to Crowley's inner thoughts. But he sees the contemplative glint in Crowley's eyes whenever he's in the office or the tasting room, and Adam thinks maybe they finally convinced him. What do you mean we still have the house? Aziraphale sets down his tablet, staring at Warlock, who is grinning. Worked a little magic, says Warlock. He's obviously smug, proud of himself, and it looks good on him. Turns out Madame Tracy was willing to put it to Gabriel, just a bit. His grin grows. Turns out that was the nail in the coffin. Oh, Warlock! Aziraphale says, meaning to sound chastising, but actually sounding relieved. He'd been preparing himself for two weeks. Two weeks left with Crowley. Two weeks left of freedom. And here he is with a full month in his lap. You shouldn't have. Why not? Warlock collapses into the chair, sprawling in a way that reminds Aziraphale of Crowley. We're both enjoying it here, and it'll help you finish your real book, won't it? Oh, absolutely, Aziraphale assures him. They've discussed this. The more he has of his book written, the more leverage they have in this contract negotiation. The real book, that is. Aziraphale still has no idea how Warlock has managed to get FTA to accept so much. Every time he asks, Warlock just laughs and says that big corporate lawyers aren't that great at checking the small print between the lines. Aziraphale himself feels like big corporations should have very expensive lawyers that keep things like this from happening, but Warlock's so sure and Aziraphale certainly isn't going to argue about getting what he wants. The real book is actually shaping up into something cohesive. Aziraphale's been reading through his early work and he could kick himself in retrospect for how obvious he'd been. His discomfort with the situation shines through the early pages. His side comments about Gabriel and about his own anxiety to meet FTA's expectations mark nearly every page. 
Likewise, he'd been so gone on Crowley from the very start. He should have known that, even as an expert in lying to himself, the truth would come out on the page. As, says Warlock, and Aziraphale realizes he's tuned out. Sorry, dear boy, I was thinking about the... the book. Good. Warlock's grin comes back. You want to hear what I'm thinking for the logistics? Aziraphale shrugs. Now is as good a time as any, and it will keep him from eagerly calling Crowley to gush about their extra time. So the book's going to be yours, Warlock tells him. But there are advantages to still publishing it through FTA. They do have reach, and even if we do end up taking your block back in the negotiations, offering to share a bit of the profits from the book in exchange for using their platform isn't that bad of an idea. Those certainly are a lot of words. Aziraphale frowns, trying to figure out what Warlock means. We let them advertise the book as something they're a part of, right? Take advantage of that for us, get you a bigger audience for the future. Then we give them a cut of whatever it sells for. No more than 10%, honestly. I'm going in at 5 to settle for 7. This is, obviously, Warlock's Realm. Aziraphale thinks about it in general terms, really. This is what he pays Warlock for, isn't it? I'm almost tempted to just, uh, well, you know, just dispose of FTA completely. That's an option. Warlock twists in his chair, throwing his legs over the armrest, and that's absolutely a Crowley move. How is he missing Crowley already, seeing him in everything? We can do that, if that's what you want. But think about the options, too. We can absolutely just divorce them, sure. But look big picture. Aziraphale frowns again. Warlock, I'm not sure what you mean. Well, Warlock leans in, folding his hands together, elbows on the table. Let me be honest, right? I think our best bet is going to be working with them to publish the first book. Let them have that, let it feel like a win, and use their reach to make your book more successful. Then we have options to consider moving forward. If the book does as well as I predict, FTA will come away having to be satisfied, and it creates a platform for you to publish additional books independently, since your name is out there. He frogs. If we want to be tactical, that's what I would suggest. Warlock reaches out and grabs the last piece of toast then, and glances back up at Aziraphale. But we don't have to be tactical. We don't have to adhere to the best logistics. This is about you, As, and if you don't trust them, we can absolutely leave. We have that room. Aziraphale sighs. 
I need to think about it. When do we need to know? No rush, says Warlock. His grin goes crooked. I mean, by the time we leave here, we need to know what we're doing. But for now, no rush. Go... He flaps a hand. Go have a date or something. You're terrible, says Aziraphale, but he does pick up his mobile. Anathema, on the other hand, knows immediately. In her gut. It's a P-word feeling. She knows before Crowley even walks into the place. She nudges Newt. He glances over at her. He's done, she murmurs. He's gone to accept. Newt, to his credit, doesn't even bother to question her. She isn't sure whether he believes her, or if he wants to believe it, or if he's just not questioning anything because he's a polite kind of person. It doesn't matter. She can tell. Every time she looks at Crowley, it's like a nudge down in her gut. She's never been more sure of anything. He'll wait a bit, Newt says to her. He isn't going to say something right away. He'll make a stew. Anathema chuckles under her breath. <laughs> of course he will. It's Crowley. The knowledge of it continues to grow the longer she's there. She knows their tasting flights by heart, and that helps. There's the friendly one for a lighter palate, featuring honey and psalms, alongside the rains for whites, and both Lilith and Judith for reds. There's their flight for dark reds, which adds in Apocalypse, Adam and Eve, and Ruth instead of the whites. Then there's their reserve flight, where tasters can compare both Apocalypse and Magnificat reserve against their fresher cousins. They do also offer a make-your-own flight, but Anathema usually encourages tourists to trust their lineups. But even as she pours and talks, she can feel the certainty climbing up her spine until it sits in the back of her skull. All of their waiting is over. All the time she and Newt have spent on backup plans, on alternate careers, that's going to be over. They're going to be a part of ecstasies. Finally. Anathema takes a moment in the basement as she pulls bottles for their tasting counter to breathe in deep and then exhale. It's going to be okay. Honestly, Pepper thinks, Adam and Warlock are being stupid. It happens, though. They're guys. They can't help a certain amount of stupid. It comes built-in standard along with the nuts and the Y chromosome. She's been around long enough to know that this world grows men who can't talk about their emotions. Typical. She's been rolling her eyes for weeks. 
It's obvious they're stupid over each other, but neither one of them wants to admit it. Pepper has known Adam since they were children, and she knows the signs. The way he trails off mid-sentence, the way he makes little things happen for Warlock that might seem like luck, but aren't, the way he's constantly shifting to include Warlock in their group, be it physically including him in their groups, or making sure their conversation doesn't veer too far down old memory routes. Adam's a dead giveaway. Pepper knows far too many of his tells already. And Warlock's new, but Pepper can tell he's equally smitten. She knows enough about Warlock to know he's never had anyone growing up. His most loyal friend is Aziraphale, but they're at least a decade apart in age. She thinks more, but is smart enough not to ask. And the whole employer-employee thing doesn't exactly make for a real equal partnership, does it? Someone like that, when they find something good like Adam? Yeah, that's always easy to see. She saw it right away, the first time they hung out, in the way they interacted. That way your intuition can tell you two people are not just compatible, but vibing in that really good way. And interested? Yeah, she's been picking up signs for a while. Hell, half the reason she got involved was to help the two of them out with each other. The other half is that she finds Warlock attractive in a really strange, competent hobo sort of way, and she really did want to hit that if it worked out. Pepper's happy on her own. She's so happy on her own. She has nothing to worry about except doing what she wants to do and being her best self. She loves being able to float in and out of things with people without having to, well, consider them. She doesn't ever want to have to compromise with anyone. She's tried the word aromantic before, but it doesn't really encompass how she feels about these kinds of things. Not at all like Wensleydale and asexual, a word he's owned since he learnt it. All this means is that it's hard for her to give advice to either Adam or Warlock, since she isn't at all sure of what either of them really wants from something like this. But even without that experience, she thinks they both need to think of themselves a little more like she does. Warlock's locked up with Aziraphale's career, and Adam's certainly committed to what they do here, but sweet goddess of the sky, they could try to prioritize themselves and each other for once in their life. What she does know is that it's going to be really awful dealing with Adam if something doesn't happen. For people that want this kind of thing, they pine terribly when they don't get it. 
And as Pepper considers herself the protective one of the them, she's going to have a lot to say if something stupid happens. With her fists, if it gets that bad. Is it strange, the way one can travel to a new place and have it feel like coming home? It feels strange. But it feels strange in a way that should truly feel stranger. There is a gap between the discomfort I expect and that which I'm feeling. That in itself is bizarre, when your brain has sorted out all of the statistical analysis and the lessons of experience and has placed this new thing into a category where it truly does not belong. That surprise, the way that the registered trend lines of the past fail to line up with a thing of the present, that is what makes these experiences special. But this is more than that. I have travelled to a number of places in my time, I'm perhaps older than my readers might think, and I've been all over Europe besides in my younger years in search of a number of tastes and pairings. To reach flavours I had not yet tasted or seen or heard. That, in fact, has been the driver of this career. To find myself new combinations of the palette that I might share with others and then using these experiences to create additional savoury moments that require no travel, no special grocery, no farmer's market. My goal, this entire time, and I can say that now with years of retrospect flashing in my own eyeballs, has been to make these things accessible to everyone, and I will stand by that. I want everyone to be able to experience something this charming. I don't want it to be limited to those who have the resources to travel. I don't want it to be based in a divide of privilege. My readers all deserve an experience of this magnitude, even when reduced to a magnitude that fits them. I have tried, I have fought and fussed to be able to translate these things into a number of languages. And yet, for all of the things I have tasted and smelt and felt against my awareness and tried to gift to people as best I could... This is a new thing. This is a place I travelled to find something new, and yet what I found out here was... myself. I have found a note in myself that has been singing for years, but I have not been listening. A pain in my bones that has been aching forever, but I have not been noting it. I have located something inside of me that's dormant. Like a seed, like a shoot, like a tiny growth of a vine when spring comes upon it. I came out here to, well, produce a certain output. To talk to you about techniques and growing seasons and the way things here are so different from the very strict methods I'm used to. And instead, I found a wild river to drown in. 
The flavors here are rich and thick. The land is bright and strong. I found a self inside myself that's more true to me than I have been. And what a sentence to write! But it's the truth. I did not realize how far I'd drifted these last few years. A part of it was finding someone, the most special of someones to meet, that person that seems to have half of your heart inside their own chest, and a part of it was the setting, and a part of it was myself. And my assistant. My glorious assistant. Maybe I'll dedicate this book to him. I owe him more than he'll ever realize.